0: Hello Longview Point. If you will take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16, I hope that last week uh, you were encouraged by Pastor Trey's study into Romans chapter 12. I know that I was, but I'm excited to be back with you again tonight and to begin to continue our study into the essentials. Of our faith, these doctrines that are non negotiables for the Christian faith that we get to, to study together. So, this is a systematic study. This is looking through multiple texts and scriptures to understand what these non negotiable doctrines truly are. To start with tonight, before we read this verse uh, or these verses, I just want to ask you what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? If I was to ask you that question, what would your answer be? For those fishermen out here, I know we have a lot of those. They may have thought about in Luke chapter 5 when they were told to cast their nets to the other side and all the fish come out of the, the where they're almost breaking the nets. There's so many fish, even though they've been fishing all night long. Or maybe your first thought goes to where he calms the storm, where the, the ship is being tossed all about and all he does is speak and the storm stops. Or maybe you think about the woman who was healed just because she reached out and touched the cloak of Jesus as he was going. Maybe you're a little bit hungry tonight and you're thinking about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. Or maybe the incredible raising of the dead of Lazarus in John 11. Or the casting out of demons in Matthew chapter 8. There are so many miracles throughout the four gospels of Jesus just constantly um, restoring things back to the way that they're supposed to be, of healing the sick, uh, the lepers, the paralytics, or casting out demons, or raising the dead, or making the blind to see, or the lame to walk. Like Jesus does some incredible miracles throughout all the gospels. But those miracles are only made possible by the most incredible miracle, the greatest miracle in the Bible, and that is God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The incarnation, the, the Christ who is 100% God and 100% man walking this earth is the most greatest, the, the most incredible miracle throughout the Bible, because it's through that that these other miracles are possible, including his own resurrection at the end of the Gospels as well. So if you will, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. And uh, we will be bouncing around a little bit tonight, but we are going to be looking at the humanity and the divinity of Christ. This is that non-negotiable. This is what he says here in Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, there's so much to unpack in those verses that that just really are incredible and encouraging. The, The fact that he's asking who the Son of Man is is pointing back to Daniel, and it's talking about the glory of the Son of Man. But you also look at how Simon Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He saw the divinity in who Christ is, and it's partnered there with the humanity of Christ as well. This is an incredible feat. This is a feat unlike anything else that that we could ever imagine. If we were to try to put this into an illustration that we could maybe understand, the closest that we could get is if, if I, as a human, was able to take on the form of a slug in order to be like the slugs and to save the slugs. But even that illustration falls so far short of what Christ did for us. Because here we have Christ who is divine, who is holy, who is God from before the beginning of time. He has always been. And yet Christ, the creator, comes and becomes the created. He becomes man. He is, he holds on to his God. He never lets go of that, to his divinity. But he becomes a man, servant to us all. It is the only way that a loving and holy God could save us from our sins is if Christ is God and man. So these are some theological concepts. And like I said just a couple of weeks ago, and I want to reemphasize that here You know, we expect our students to learn trigonometry and uh, AP biology, all those kind of things. They can learn this theology as well of what it means that Christ is man and God. Really, the first four major councils of church history were set out to define who Christ was, to to make sure that the church as a whole wasn't going off the rails into unorthodoxy and heresy. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew who Christ was in the way to eternal life. So they clarified this and they, they made sure that the railings were there. And so we want to look at that tonight and make sure that our railings are there, that we know who Christ is. And what that means for us. So why is it important that Christ is human? Why is it important that He took on flesh? The first reason is that He identifies with us. Flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, verse 15 says, we'll start in 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw or let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have received mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Flip over a couple of more pages. First Peter chapter one, uh, or chapter two, verses twenty-one through twenty-five says this: "says For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." He identifies with us. It's always interesting to think about Christ as a man, but Think about him, even go back to Christmas and think about him as a baby in need of being fed and, and taken care of, or think about how he grows and how he was a young kid playing when, with the other kids there in, in Nazareth, or, or Nazareth. Or think about how he was a teenager and it, he would be just like every other teenager where he was hungry and wanting food all the time probably as he was growing or an adult who was tired as he traveled and ministered and cared for all those people, he understood what it means. He understands what it means to be human. We have a great high priest who understands our weaknesses, who knows what it's like to be tempted. He identifies with us as humans. He's not distant and disconnected, but yet he has been here, walked this earth the dirt on His feet, the sweat on His brow, the pain, the suffering that He's gone through, He identifies with all of that and more than what we even know. Because He lived His life to perfection. Never doubting the love of the Father, never wavering from the path that God, the Father, had for Him, but living in perfect obedience. So if you think about that, he was tempted beyond even what we've ever been tempted before. Christ was tempted to the fullest extent. And so many times we give in to our temptation before we ever get through it. But here Christ identifies with us because he's been tempted. He's been tried. He's suffered. He's gone through pain. He's grown. He's hungered. He's tired. He's done all those things, and yet he walked in perfect obedience with God the Father. Oh, I hope that encourages us today that we realize the beauty of who Jesus is. The man Christ Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. Him identifying as a human actually goes a step further because because he was a man, he is able to be our substitute. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. I told you this is a systematic study, so we're having to bounce around a little bit here, but um, stay with me as it's so important to see what the Bible says as a whole about this. It says in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, for if because of one man's trespass, talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, He is our substitute. He is the one who paid the price for our sin. He is the one who took the penalty of our sin on Himself. He conquered death so that we can have eternal life. He lived a righteous life so that we can be counted as righteous. He achieved the purposes that God had for Him, the Father had for Him, living out this life of perfect obedience all the way to the cross. I think about the passage of Scripture that Pastor Wade dove into this past week, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, one of the most incredible passages in all of Scripture, where he empties himself, becoming a servant, even to the point of death. That is what Christ has done for us. He has taken the punishment that we deserve so that we can have eternal life, so that our filthiness is washed away and His righteousness is placed instead. He is the only way of salvation, and it is because He took on human flesh that He is able to pay the price for our sin. So His humanity is is so important. We have to hold to Christ being man, but we also need to hold to Christ being God. So why is that important that Christ is also divine? The first reason that it's important is that he claims to be God. He claims to be God. Flipping over again, John chapter 10 this time. Look at John chapter 10. This is what it says there in verses 22 through 33. It says, at the, the says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now listen to this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And he continues, Jesus answered them. I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. You being a man, make yourself God. The people that were hearing what Jesus was saying, when he says, I and the Father are one, they take up stones. They decide that that very moment that they are going to be judge, jury and executioner because they knew what he was claiming. He wasn't claiming that he was a great prophet. He wasn't claiming he was a great teacher. He wasn't claiming that he was a good moral person. No, he was claiming that he is God. One hundred percent God. And the Jewish people hearing what he said knew that and wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And so if we are to hold that that he is who he says he is, we have to hold to the fact that he is God in the flesh. It's fascinating how when you mention the name of Jesus, it really puts a stake in the ground, doesn't it? So many people are fine talking about God, talking about, you know, in all these generic terms. But as soon as you mention Jesus, there's something about that name. So many other religious teachers, Muhammad, Buddha, they all tried to point people to God. But Jesus is the one who claims to be God. There's, There's no confusion in that. He is not leaving any room for doubt that that is who he's claiming to be. And so if that's not who he is, then he's a liar and he's deceiving people for all of eternity. But as you look at his life, you realize that he is who he says that he is. That he will conquer death. He'll conquer the grave. He will rise again, showing that he is God. What an incredible God that we serve, that Jesus, God, Put on flesh and dwells among us. We also can look at it's not just him that says that he's God, but the witnesses around him profess that He is God. I think about the soldier at the cross who professes that. I think about Paul on the road to Damascus as soon as he sees the bright light and is blinded by it, but he says, "Who are you, Lord?" this title of of royalty, this title of divinity. Or I think about the boldness of the apostles throughout the book of Acts who had seen the risen Savior and knew that all that he had taught was true. And he is who he says that he is. And so I think that we can hold to to the fact that he is divine because he said it, because the witnesses around him said it. But I think that there's another thing, and this continues on in in who he's claiming to be, but flip over again, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this is what it says. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, listen to what he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. You see who they take him to be right there. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, as we think about his perfect obedience and his humanity, it should also draw to our minds our sinfulness. And our sinfulness may be against different people, but most of all, as David says, he has sinned and we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And the only person who can forgive our sins against God is God himself, because he is the offended party. He is the one that we have uh, rebelled against and have uh, undermined it and have gone against his will. And so he alone is the one who's able to forgive sins. It's like if I was to walk up and kick uh, Pastor Trey, I don't go to Pastor Jason asking for forgiveness. Instead, the person that I need to ask for forgiveness is Trey. He's the one that I need to to go before because he is the offended party. Well, our sins are a great offense to a holy and righteous God and only God is able to forgive our sins. And so he sends his son who is divine to pay the price for our sins. It all goes back to it. This idea of the divinity and the humanity of Christ is quintessential. There's no negotiating how important that is for our salvation that we can enter into a relationship with God. No one else can forgive our debt of sin other than the one who holds it. And that is Christ. And yet, He pays that price for us. That debt has been paid in full. And we, as we enter into a relationship with Him and confess our sins and ask Him to save us from our sins, He puts the stamp on it and says that your debt has been taken away. And you now have my righteousness of perfection and perfect obedience. Because that is the gift that He has given us. You know, as we think about the cross and, and that payment of sin, so many times we think about the gift of eternal life that we've been given. Like we, we look at it from that perspective, but think about the cost that Christ and His humanity goes to the cross, the pain and the suffering that He is willing to pay so that we can have that relationship with Him. What an amazing gift of eternal life, but what an even more amazing giver who would pay that price for us. So how does this theology affect our lives? We're talking about this as essential. What what does this mean for us? One, I hope that tonight, that that as we've studied the divinity and humanity of Christ, I, I hope it helps you to realize our need for a Savior. His perfect obedience, our disobedience. We all need someone to pay that price for us. And Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So my prayer is that that as you're watching this, as you're listening to this, if you don't know Christ, that you will take care of that and you realize your need for Jesus to save you from the penalty of our sins. The second thing that I think that we need to realize from this is the love of the Father who so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Like I was talking about, the giver pays so much to give us that gift of eternal life. And He pays it out of His love. The overwhelming, overflowing love of God. So we realize our need for a Savior. we realize the love of the Father. I hope you also realize the power of the Holy Spirit. As you think about the humanity of Christ, you realize that that he uh, lived the life that he did. He grew uh, as he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was dwelling within him and it's the same Holy Spirit that is dwelling within us as believers, as followers of Christ. that The Holy Spirit is within us and we can be obedient to God because of the Holy Spirit being there in us. And so I hope that you are encouraged that that there is no temptation that has seized you except for what is common to man. And God is faithful and he makes a way out. He gives you the, sh- the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit within your heart. So even as we talk about the divinity and the humanity of Christ, the Trinity from two weeks ago comes back in to all of it. Our need for the Savior, the love of the Father, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of who Christ is. So here's the point, praise the Lord, praise the Lord that Christ came in flesh in order for us to have eternal life. Trust in Him today. If you walk with Him already, just stop and just sing His praises, just stop and say a prayer of thanksgiving, just stop and just worship Him. Because it is amazing that the God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, puts on flesh and dwells among us so that we can have a way to eternal life. Conclude with a couple of questions and then our prayer. Questions for you as you're sitting there watching is, why does the illustration of a human becoming a slug fall short. We talked about that at the beginning of our sermon tonight, of our Bible study. Why does that fall short comparing that to Christ, God becoming man in the flesh? Number two, what do you think causes people to be offended by the name of Jesus? Why is that such a controversial name? Number three, how does it encourage you to know that the Holy Spirit is within those who follow Christ? And my last question, why is it important to understand that Christ is fully God and fully man, all in one person? So I hope that this has been encouraging for you as well and that you have a better understanding of the divinity and the humanity of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance to open up your word, to study it, to know it better, to... Uh, just spend this time with you. And Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he came, that he put on flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he walked this very earth, the, the dusty feet, all because he knew that we needed him in order to have salvation. Lord, give us clarity. Give us a desire to know you more. Give us you've given us so much. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Help us to praise you, the giver of every good thing. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.